welcome to another episode of the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. Tim, you had the interview again this week. Um, you got to speak with a couple execs from Condé Nast Entertainment, Agnes Chu, who is the president of CNE, and Helen Estabrook, who is the global head of film and TV at CNE. Um, I am very curious because... CNE has historically been focused on more digital video, um, given the fact that Condé Nast's brands are typically formerly magazine first brands, but have since become more digital publications. Um, but I'm curious, there have been so many publishers that have been trying to get into um, IP licensing, you know, going to networks like HBO or even some of the streaming platforms like Amazon and uh, Netflix to get their IP licensed and turn it in that into a TV show or a movie. I'm wondering, is CNE kind of looking to do that with some of the Condé Nast brands? Yeah. And, and, you know, to be fair, they've been doing that. You're absolutely right. They've, you know, CNE's, the bulk of their work and the bulk of their business has been on the digital video front, videos that, you know, short form videos that they post to their publication sites, as well as YouTube and other platforms, um, but they have you know adapted articles into TV shows and movies. Um, but it, a lot of times, like it hasn't been clear that oh that you know CNE was involved. There was a, you know, a Robert Redford movie a few years ago called The Old Man and the Gun that was a CNE production. Um, there was also you know there's also the show Last Chance You on Netflix, which is a CNE production. And so what Agnes and Helen you know talk about is how CNE is looking to get more active and to become even more a part of and more associated with the projects that they're working on when it, in the TV and movie industry. Got it. Yeah. So I guess like from a logistics standpoint, how involved have they been and how involved are they trying to become from the CNE kind of team, but also from the editorial team? Because it sounds like, you know, you need to be pretty tapped into what the brands are writing about um, in order to get those licensed and, and turned into programming at the pace that they're looking to do that at. Yeah. And so, I mean, Agnes and Helen are both very tapped in into like the TV and film industries. Um, Agnes, you know, came from Disney. She was SVP of content for Disney Plus. Um, and then Helen, you know, it's been an independent producer and she's worked on, you know, f- she's Oscar nominated one. She's worked on films like Whiplash um, and she's had, you know, deals with Hulu and HBO. Um, and so in terms of like how involved they are now in the projects uh, during this interview, Helen was actually on set for um, the film adaptation of a New Yorker short story called Cat Person that they have in the works. And so one thing that they're doing when it comes to being more involved with the Condé Nast publications is um, taking advantage of these studios, these publication specific studios that CNE formed in February 2020 and using those to get a better communication line into edit in terms of like what story pipelines are because um you know one thing that they want to be doing is that when an an article or a short story you know publishes in the new yorker or you know vogue or vanity fair um, they want to be able to announce a deal to adapt it into a movie or tv show at the time of publication um, so that they can really like have that halo around both the article or short story and um, whatever the film or TV project may be. 
fast, fast turnaround, it sounds like. Um, well, I will let you get into it with Agnes and Helen. Um, and before you do that, though, I um, just want to call out that later this week, we're going to have the second episode of a two-part mini-series that uh, Digiday has been doing from our colleague, Kate Kay. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's just a really fascinating look into an enforcement agency that's getting much more active and we all expect to be a fixture in the media and advertising landscape and technology landscape for a while. Awesome. Yeah. And if anyone hasn't listened to the first episode, make sure to check it out. It should be the most recent post in the feed before this one. So um, anyway, I will let you take it away with today's interview. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kayla. Agnes Chu, Helen Esterbrook, welcome to the Today Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having us. So, Agnes, I want to start with you because obviously a little over a year ago, you joined Condé Nast Entertainment after having most recently served as SVP of content for Disney+. Plus. So companies don't bring in new leaders because they want to maintain the status quo. And similarly, I imagine someone with your track record, you know, even just your work at Disney Plus and being involved in bringing baby Yoda into the world. You don't then go to an organization like CNE without, you know, seeing new opportunities there. So how is Condé Nast Entertainment different today than when you joined uh, September of last year? That's a great question, Tim. I mean, first of all, I remember seeing you host the New Fronts, I think, almost a year ago. And I think you asked the same, a very similar question, uh, the surprise that you had that I had come over and um, your curiosity about what was going on at Connie Nast overall. I mean, I, I will tell you that in this past year, it's been such an exciting and invigorating experience really just to uncover the riches that we have here across all the brands of Condé Nast, um, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Vogue, GQ. I'm just naming a few of them. There are many more. And just the amount of uh, cultural influence and impact that we have. It's a pretty rare um, collection, a very, very rare collection, one that uh, has a history of IP from over a century and continues to resonate with audiences really around the world. So that's what attracted me to this job. And that's also what um, has been really exciting to just unlock in this past year. So um, when I think about where we were last September and now, it's it feels it feels like ages ago. Some of it maybe the COVID <laughs> timing of it all, where like, you know, um, we've all lost track of time. I'm just really proud of the teams. We've achieved so much in a very short period of time. Uh, we brought in an entirely um, new leadership. Helen Estabrook is here on the call or on this podcast with us. And um, what we're doing in film and television is a real uh, deliberate and intentional lean into our brands in a way that we haven't done before. Uh, how we're working with the Hollywood industry with um, um, great vision and leadership uh, with our business affairs and operations team under Jen Jones. All of that is uh, just a really fantastic uh, way that we've been approaching developing film and TV as a production company in a way that is is definitely um, a pivot, a definitely a change from from how Connie Nass Entertainment was necessarily operating. Um, how would you describe that pivot, Agnes? Mm, I mean, in the past, we've had great access to IP. That's always been um, one of the bedrocks that we have. We didn't necessarily 
um, embrace the brand of it all. So uh, you even mentioned, I think in the past, just about like, oh, you didn't know Last Chance You was one of our series. It's because no one knew that it was actually torn from the magazine of GQ. That story was torn from uh, the GQ um, journalism. Um, that's something that with Helen's leadership that we're doing differently. We're very aligned with the brands. We're very aligned with the attributes of the brands. Helen's been working very closely with the editors in terms of the processes there. Uh, but we're also leading um, with the brand itself. So we recently announced, for example, um, the Great Art Heist, Great Chinese Art Heist. That's GQ's, um, you know, insert title of the article. Like that's been been the part that has been, I think, a big a big change. Got it. Yeah, Helen. And so I want to bring you in because you joined in March of this year. And prior to joining Condé Nast Entertainment, you had been an independent producer. You know, you had deals with HBO and with Hulu. You Oscar nominated producer on Whiplash. Um, you also worked on Up in the Air. And so like coming into Condé Nast Entertainment, like, yeah, how are you working with the brands and how does it compare to the work you were doing previously? I mean, the fun thing about this is that the work that I'm doing, the goal of my everyday hasn't changed in years. I just want to make great movies and great TV shows. And the exciting thing for me is the ability that I have to do it here is so much greater because I'm surrounded by such intelligent people. We get to, in this alignment with the brands, be partnered with the journalists, the editors of these magazines who are some of the smartest people I've ever met and doing some of the greatest work and telling some of the most interesting stories. And so for me, it's really just being able to level up in the work that I was doing before, but the goal remains the same. Got it. And then how is it different from the Condé Nast entertainment perspective? Because as Agnes mentioned, there's a long history of Condé Nast articles or articles from various Condé Nast publications being turned into movies or TV shows or documentary series or films. Um, and so what's different about what you're doing now? What we're doing is really, as I say, working alongside and with the publication so that we're creating new systems of working so that we can work with them in the ways that they have all individual systems for how they work, for how they find stories, for how they tell those stories. So it's really, you know, it is one great production company, but in some ways it's several different production companies because it's GQ Studios and the New Yorker Studios and Vanity Fair Studios. And each of those studios have their specific ways of working to make sure that we are doing that, tell, to, telling those same great stories just in a new medium. Uh, and it's been really fun because, as I say, it's just such incredible talent um, and so many fun ways to figure out how to bring these stories to life on the screen. Tim, just to add a little bit to that, like what's, what is particularly special here is that we also have early access to all of this IP and um, early access to the great writers and thinkers that are at our publications. That's also something that has changed. And I think before um, our timelines were a little bit separate um, and sometimes not particularly um, aligned. And with uh, the partnership and the collaboration that we're building with our editors and with the publications, it is actually about aligning our timeline so that we're very early on in identifying great IP that could be for um, uh, that could be made into a great film or a great television show. And Helen and the team um, through these bespoke processes are just really able to identify things early and therefore um, 
package things early and bring them out to the marketplace in a way that we weren't able to before. Yeah. One of the fun things we get to do is uh, we've done this with our Hillsong project and we are doing this. We also just recently did this with the People's History of Black Twitter out of Wired, where we're actually announcing the adaptation on the same day that the article is being published. And that's a really fun thing for all of us to do to show that sort that that we are just finding new places to tell these great stories. And that was kind of a strategy that was a bit in place. I think it was like February 2020, if I remember right, when I wrote about how Condé Nast Entertainment formed, um, I think it was five at the time, publication-specific studios. And so, so, Agnes, that's something that you've continued. Why choose to continue with that? And is that something where there have been any new developments when it comes to the studios or how the studios are structured within CNA? You're right that it was um, the announcement of those five studios was in February of 2020. Um, it was great vision from both my predecessor and also Kanye Nast and Roger overall and how we're transforming Kanye Nast into um, really a, a multi-hyphenate, a, a media entertainment company. I think what's distinct here, though, and certainly with Helen's joining of, of Kanye Nast Entertainment is the fact that we're being very producerial. It's not just that we're bringing out IP under these studios. It's that we have a producer like Helen who has an incredible track record to work very early on with the editors, work very early on with the writers and the talent themselves to bring this undeniable take out into the marketplace. So it's it may be one thing to start a studio and to announce that and to announce these brands, but um, if we're not creating and developing a unique storytelling take. Uh, it's still a very, the past was a bit more of a passive approach. And what we're describing here is a very active producerial approach where we're adding value as a production company. We are helping writers and the talent that we have internally and externally to bring the best story into the marketplace. I'm not sure that that expertise was necessarily there before. We have that capability now with Helen and the team that she's building. Got it. Helen, on that point, like how, like what's the full scope of your and your team's involvement in these projects? Because as Agnes was saying, a lot of, you know, media companies have moved into entertainment, but, you know, really they're effectively licensing IP and then they're kind of outsourcing a lot of the work to outside production companies. But then there are companies like Vox Media, for example, which has formed a full studio and is very much hands-on. So how is CNE specifically approaching like the mechanics of this? We're really acting as creative producers. And we are, you know, part of the, but one of the big things that I like to do and talk about a lot is just offer a level of transparency to our journalists and to our editors so that they understand when we are talking about a project, we, these are, you know, here's my plan for next steps for what I would do with this article. And just being very clear about, you know, I think that sometimes the film and TV industry likes to be opaque because it likes to keep itself sort of strangely special. But I don't, I think that that's just an outdated mode. I think that, you know, it's a complicated time in the business on a number of levels. And the only way through is to be very clear about the plan and the ways in which you're working and making sure that everyone is aligned with the plan, both creatively and logistically and moving forward that way. And I think that that's really what my team and I are focused on is making sure that everyone understands, okay, great. Here's what our plan is. We're hoping that 
X, Y, Z will happen. If it doesn't, we're going to go to ABC and this is how we, this is how we move forward. And I think it's just, it's a way to make sure that we are being great partners, um, both to the people we're working with creatively outside of the company, but also within. Obviously the, the listeners can't see you, Helen, but you're on set on a project today. So, so like what, when <laughs> you're am. on set, what's the role that you have and do you have team members with you as well? I don't unfortunately have team members with me, but my role is, as I say, it's very similar to what I was doing before I got to Condé Nast. You know, I'm really just, I, I, we are creative producers in our projects and that's what I'm doing here today. Just making sure that I'm, you know, uh, helping with all of the aspects of production that I would otherwise. And luckily I have a great team back in the office who are handling the development pieces and everything else while I'm here. Um, but it's really fun because this is, this is what we're doing it for, right. Is to actually make these things. And I'm really excited about this production in particular. We have Susanna Fogel directing and she's just fantastic. And we have this amazing cast with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun and I got a little starstruck when I met Isabella Rossellini, but you know, it's a, it's been a very fun, um, it's been a very fun process. And as I say, it's something that I am excited about because it's where I like to be, but also being able to continue on all of the great work and the development end too. Which project is this one? Oh, sorry. It's called Cat Person. Oh, it's uh, for New Yorker Studios. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's the New Yorker short story that we are doing as a feature film with Studio Canal. And um, like, when you're all like pitching projects, you know, now to networks or streaming services or for theatrical, I'm curious, like what the conversations are like and how they compare for you, Helen, compared to, you know, prior to Condé Nast Entertainment. Because I would, I could imagine that some of the executives on the other side of it, at the networks or the streamers um, could be looking at this as like, okay, media company, like let's, we'll take your IP, but you know, then, you know, that's kind of the extent of it for you, but how are you getting them to look at you differently? I mean, again, I think a big piece of it is uh, being helping be the thoughtful, creative leads on it to really make sure that we are aligned and that when we're pitching to people, they understand that it's the same thing as if I was producing before. And that was something that was always fun and interesting. And I think had, had a certain value add because they really need people who have experience putting these things together and putting them out into the world in the best way. And that's really what we're doing here. And it's, it's particularly exciting because we have the access and the partnership with our journalists and with our editors. And so people also know that we have the strength of the brand behind us. It's not, it's not just, here's a random article. It's, Hey, we have this amazing journalist who did all of this research. And yes, this is an amazing article, but you don't even know the half of it. There's all these other stories that we can bring into this project. There's all these, uh, this so much more information, both within the journalist and then with the brands and what they're able to do as well. And I think that it's really exciting. You know, we've had people tell us that it's very fun to ha see the New Yorker logo on the front of their film and things like that. You know, so I, I think it's, I think it's quite a few things. Um, and it doesn't, for me personally, it doesn't change the way I pitch. It's I'm pitching the same way that I always have, but this is a particularly exciting time to have both the fundamental creative producing aspect of it, but then all of these other elements from the benefits of the brands and the amazing people we have around us. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back. 
Agnes, I mean, you and Helen both know better than I do about the power of packaging. Um, but it's one thing that you know publishers have talked about for years at this point. Oh, not only can we be involved in the production or you know, development of a show or a movie, but we have these websites and these apps and our YouTube channels and all the various social accounts where we can also help to promote it. And so that's going to help us get a deal with you know, a Netflix or a Warner Media or a Disney. Um, but now, like, being on this side of it, like, how does packaging actually look? And also, like, are there more nuances to it on, like, the types of packaging that you find most successful? I mean, Tim, I think you totally hit the nail on the head that every buyer is looking for a way to really meet their, to get an audience and to attract an audience. So what are some of the surefire ways or even shortcuts to get there. I think brands are one of the best ways to do that. Um, and we already at Condé Nast have brands that audiences recognize around the world. When you say Vogue in Korea, in France, you know, in the United States, people immediately know what Vogue means. It Everyone recognizes its authority in fashion and its ability to impact culture. So that kind of shortcut to audiences is also very attractive uh, to the people that we are pitching to and to buyers. And then on on top of that, um, we have an ability to make something um, even louder, like all the sum of our parts, basically. I mean, and I have no better example than what we just did at, at the Met Gala. Um, when we fire up all of the um, engines inside of the Kanye Nast ecosystem, our ability to um, create content on social, our ability to um, really command audiences on YouTube, our ability to um, have a, a website going, all of these photos um, and an archive of all the best um, uh, costumes and, and fashion from years past of Met Gala, all of that firing together at the same time, we make noise, we influence the world. Um, I, you know, I just saw a really phenomenal stat from the team where we uh, just the Met Gala alone broke all of our records in September uh, with 1.56 billion video views across all the platforms where we distribute our videos. That's a record break for our entire company just from this past month. Um, and I do think that uh, buyers in the marketplace uh, will take note of just how much we can command influence uh, and ultimately, uh, ideally, I drive them to watch uh, even more content from their platform and from our brands as a result. Got it. On the, I guess, long form side of it, the movies and the TV shows, how are you structuring these deals when it comes to rights and, and rights ownership? Um, it, it, you know, everything is a, a bit bespoke. Um, and certainly we are being very thoughtful about ultimately what is friendly for our talent. We are working with the best and brightest in the world. And so um, we first approach this from a, a talent perspective. And um, Jen Jones and team have brought uh, a great credibility in terms of how we're approaching our deal making. I don't want to get into too much specifics uh, with you here, but it is, um, it, it, I think the, the biggest thing is that we've approached all of this both from a talent perspective and also with speed. There's no surefire way to like delay a project or like take the air out of a project by just like endless negotiations and year-long deal-making uh, processes. Um, 
what the business affairs team has done uh, for film and television. I think we did more deals this past year um, than we did in like the last two years alone um, is, I think, speaks a lot to just our um, alacrity in approaching what is a very fast moving industry. Um, and so we're, we're being very nimble here and, and, and really wanting to get great work done. Got it. And then, I mean, we've seen it, you know, Disney, for example, Netflix and others, kind of the importance of the library, of the the ownership of original programming, especially from a long-term perspective. And I get the sense that like a lot of media companies um, who kind of, you know, come outside of entertainment historically are also starting to think of, you know, things in, in that respect. You know, if, you know, what's our streaming service or, you know, we at least don't want to lock ourselves out from having a streaming service one day. If we, you know, all of these great projects that we produced in the past, we just wouldn't be able to put on there. So is it something where you're looking to, or starting to think about how do you maintain the rights for these projects? Cause I think if I'm not mistaken, you have like 70 projects in either development or production currently. So that's a nice little pipeline. We do. We have a great pipeline, a great slate. Um, you're making me flash back to my Disney plus days where I was like, looking at binders of, of licensing deals and all of that. So, you know, I do have a unique perspective about just the ownership and rights to projects. First and foremost, for us right now, it's about being a great production company that's delivering fantastic quality premium television and films. We're focused there and that's what the team is focused on doing. Um, a future world of, um, delivering direct to consumers. We already do that in our digital video and soon podcast space. Uh, but that's not, that's not really um, what I would say is like what, how we're sorting for impact right now in film and TV. First and foremost, it's just being um, great producers and, and um, identifying great content. Got it. Helen, on the production side of things, obviously a lot has changed when it comes to production over the past 18 months um, because there was a period where there wasn't any in-person production. Everyone had to switch to promote. And even the return to production has been varied, you know, company to company. And I don't know that anyone would necessarily say they're at a point of being fully back. Like I think um, Bella Baharia from Netflix um, was quoted in Financial Times um, recently as, you know, saying that they'll have a steady state of supply for programming, you know, through 2022, um, but the fact that like she's saying that in October of 2021, probably a lot different for them with Condé Nast Entertainment, like where are you all in terms of the return to production, getting to what you would consider a regular workload? I mean, I think we're getting pretty close. It's certainly, I think for no one, is it completely back to hundred percent, but you know, being on set right now feels really good and it's really nice. And I, I, I'm happy at all of the safety measures that we have enforced to make sure that everyone feels good and safe about it. And I think that that will, I mean, my hope is that that will just continue and grow and we'll get closer and closer to back to normal. But I do, I do feel good about, um, I do feel good about where we were, where we are right now and optimistic for the future. Got it. And we're, you know, recording this interview on October 13th. Um, this morning, IATSE, the labor union, announced, set a strike date um, for October 18th. Between now and then, everything could change. Um, they may or may not go on strike. But at the same time, I imagine you all have to have some contingency plans in place in the event that there is a strike, in the event that there is a strike and it's you know a prolonged 
strike. What are the contingency plans that you have, Helen? Well, for the particular production that we're in, we're actually under a different contract because it's not a it's not the contract with the studios that they're currently negotiating. So for us, we obviously are a fully union shoot. Um, that's the way I always want work, but um, they uh, it is it is a different level because we're a tier two film. Got it. And like for you know folks who maybe listening to this podcast and not like super familiar with the the workings of the traditional entertainment industry or kind of the history of these types of periods um, that we potentially may be going into, like how significant could this be if, you know, there is a strike? I mean, you know, I, I don't think I'm the best expert to talk about it, but I do think that the fact is it is, I think it is time for everyone to feel good about the working conditions that that we all are a part of. And that I think that it's important for people to understand how many people it takes to make a film or a TV show and how hard every single person on a production works and making sure that everyone feels safe and good about their work they do is a real priority for me and for us. And I, I think that it's something that we, you know, I, I am, I am glad we are having this conversation as an industry right now. Agnes, speaking of you know working conditions, a lot of attention's been paid, you know, both on working conditions, but then also representation across you know all industries. But you know, in the entertainment industry, I mean, UCLA and USC, you know, as just one example, like put out these great and, and unfortunate studies um, showing just the lack of representation within our, the entertainment industry, both for film and TV in front of the camera and behind the camera. And, and then obviously, you know, predating both of you joining Condé Asset Entertainment, there were issues at uh, Bon Appetit when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what have you put in place to improve the level of representation and equity in CNE's projects, both when it comes to film and TV side of things, but then also on the digital video side? For me, all of this starts first and foremost with who's at the table making decisions on a day-to-day of the stories that we're telling, who we're hiring, um, the talent that we're featuring. And that comes from um, having a diverse and inclusive uh, set of leaders inside of our organization. And I'm really proud of the people uh, that are here at Connie Nast Entertainment. Some of them were here before. Um, some of them have new roles. And up and down throughout CNE, it's been really great to see how all of us have really been very intentional with how wide a net we've been casting to bring in the best and the brightest. Um, ultimately, Uh, I'm here to drive great results at Connie Nass Entertainment and great results comes from having a diverse and inclusive voice, um, many voices at the, at these tables. So um, that's how first and foremost, I've been focused is just who are we, who are we hiring here at Connie Nast Entertainment? We've also been very thoughtful about uh, the actual storytelling that we do. And that comes from um, setting standards uh, we've actually partnered with um, a, a company called Collective Moxie um, with Julianne Cromit. Uh, she's someone who has incredible experience uh, designing production processes um, and also giving really intentional feedback about how um, 
how teams are constructed, how casts are constructed, um, even early uh, conversations about the the consultants that we bring in um, to inform our storytelling. All of that has been very intentional and part of our um, processes here at CNE. And then um, um, on a macro level at Conde Nast, we brought in um, a really incredible chief diversity officer, Yashika Olden, who has also been um, providing such phenomenal North Stars for us as a company as we continue to really learn from our past and make a ton of actionable progress in this space. Um, I am, um, while, while some of the stuff did predate me, I will say that I am pretty amazed on um, a regular basis of how diverse um, my Zoom calls get to be. It's something that, as, as you point out, um, is not totally typical for the entertainment industry Almost all of my Zoom calls often are, are populated entirely by women and people of color. Uh, that's a real first uh, in in my many decades here, and and um, that that gets me that makes me feel really uh, proud, and and I love the purpose of that. Got it. And, and with that, like, have you implemented any specific requirements either when it comes to hiring or the people working on projects in front of or behind the camera? Because I know in talking with diversity, equity, inclusion experts, they say, yes, obviously the goal is for everyone to be moving towards better representation and to make that a priority. But a lot of times in order for that to actually happen, there need to be kind of specific thresholds, numbers that are set to at least create that momentum so that one day it can become very natural and organic. Mm-hmm. It's definitely conversations that we've been having um, internally. It goes down to actually like the nuts and bolts of our production Bibles even. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right that it becomes, um, we have to build in these these metrics as a way to keep ourselves accountable and have metrics of success. Hopefully one day we don't have to have them um, in the future that just becomes kind of like natural uh, routines of, of how we do our, how we conduct our business, how we conduct our lives, frankly. Um, but yes, uh, it goes down to the details of our production Bibles. Got it. We need to you know wrap up shortly before we do. I want to talk a bit about the digital video side of, of things. Cause I mean, that's, I think historically and probably still today, the bulk of Condé Nast Entertainment's business, as well as its production output. You know, the information reported recently that around 80% of Condé Nast Entertainment's U.S. revenues are estimated to be from digital video ads. Is that right? And, and what goal do you have between uh, how revenue will break down between digital video ads and you know, selling shows and movies? Digital video is core to our business, 100% core to our business. You're, you're, um, I'm not sure if those metrics are exactly right that you're describing, but it is a, a majority of uh, the revenue that drives our U.S. business and Connie Nast Entertainment overall. Um, and continue advertising continues to be very, very important to us. Um, as we continue to grow, it is about ultimately meeting audiences where they are. We know audiences are also in podcasts, in film and television. So what I'm doing here is expanding the pie, not choosing one thing or the other, if that makes sense. Um, and so really, uh, our investment in digital video continues our our uh, appetite and desire to innovate there and to bring new formats to all of our digital platforms is huge. Um, I mentioned the Met Gala before, but I'm really proud of just 
all of our brands. Wired right now is having a phenomenal um, um, performance. We had um, a great a great format that we just piloted with to great success with um, John Cena and Pete Davidson uh, reviewing tech gadgets. Uh, that was both hilarious and informative, which I think is uh, a great uh, a great way to really meet our audiences with some of the great content that Wired brings and the brand attributes that Wired brings. Um, so it's, it continues to be a, a space of, of great importance to us. Okay. And then Helen, like we talked about, you know, adapting a New Yorker short story, like cat person into a movie, but when you're looking at, you know, IP opportunities, like a, a digital video series that, you know, Wired or GQ or Vogue may be putting together or, you know, podcasts, do you, are there like different considerations when you're evaluating those to adapt into a movie or a TV show? I mean, I think it's the general considerations that we put forth for all of these, which is, you know, is what is the best what is the best adaptation for telling the story? How do we stay true to it in a new medium? And who are the exciting partners and talent that we can bring along to enhance it and un- modify it for its adaptation? Okay, well, Helen, I know you got to get back to set. Agnes, you need to get back to running a entertainment company that has more than 70 projects in production and development. So appreciate you both taking the time out of your day to talk with me. Thank you so much. Tim, great to, great to talk with you. And thank you for listening to the Digiday podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode.